welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, we're going to take a look at an event that happened not only in Southwest Michigan, but across Michigan and across the northern part of the United States. And that was the Armistice Day Blizzard of 1940. Now, this was a blizzard that struck the Midwest, and it was the type of snowstorm that engenders legends and is remembered for decades to come. So come along and join me. There are many layers to the story, and it is quite an epic tale looking back at it. So today I'm going to be referring to the National Weather Service website on the history of the Armistice Day blizzard of 1940, as well as a few other online references. To fully understand this event, you have to kind of go back in time to what weather prediction was like in 1940. Weather observations, forecasts, and warnings were quite different in 1940, and so were the ways that people received information. Until 1934, the Weather Bureau offices operated 12 to 15 hours a day, with two basic observations taken at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. That was the limits to the observations at these weather uh, stations. The observations were then transmitted via telegraph, and there were no satellite images and few upper air observations. In the Midwest, the Chicago district issued weather forecasts for Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Weather Bureau forecasts, which were issued mid-morning and then mid-evening, were brief and pretty general. So that was the extent of what you had in the way of forecasting up until 1934. And it didn't change dramatically until after this event in 1940. And then when it was distributed, the distribution methods ranged from reports in newspapers. Sometimes they were placed on cards that were displayed in the lobbies of public buildings, radio broadcasts, and sometimes they were sent by telegraph. Cold wave warnings, which were prepared for citrus fruit growers, cranberry, tobacco interest, and iron ore shippers, were based upon forecasters recognizing a particular weather pattern and its potential effect. Weather Bureau offices in cities like Davenport, Iowa, and Dubuque provided weather observations, which were sent to the district offices via teletype. A wealth of weather observational records, which had been accumulated since the 1800s, were basically underutilized until computers improved the ability to record and retrieve data. So they had all these records of all these previous winters and storms that had been accumulated from the 1800s, but because there wasn't really a computer technology at that time, it was all manual referencing, and so there was a lack of spontaneous ability to retrieve data when they recognize similar patterns. Computers have made weather prediction a lot more easier for those in the weather bureaus in present day. So during the modernization of 1934, card punching of weather data and weather calls to weather bureau offices increased 
to about 100 phone requests a day for climate information. And in 1938, a breakfast forecast was introduced and predictions were revised four times a day, 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. For rural communities, weather information was limited, but certainly available since it was common for telephone operators and carriers on rural free delivery mail routes to distribute information. And in 1940, long-range forecasting was introduced. And this longer forecast, which covered five days and which was issued twice a week, was based upon upper air pressure data and correlated with past weather patterns. So when this storm front came through in 1940, there was a five-day forecast which had been recently introduced, and it was given out twice a week. I mean, today we can go on an app on our phone and find uh, an updated hourly five-day forecast. They didn't have that back in 1940. Now, if you look outside in this November as I'm releasing this podcast episode, you probably have recognized that November has been relatively mild so far. It's been in the 50s during the day, and it's been uh, an opportunity to get out there and rake your yard, clean your gutters, and uh, prepare your uh, homesteads for the winter without a lot of harsh weather conditions to deal with. This may sound eerily familiar as I read the next part of this story. In November of 1940, the fall was extremely mild, and across the upper Midwest temperatures were well above normal in the morning of November 11th. So warm that at 7.30 in the morning, the temperature at Chicago was 55 degrees, and that's Fahrenheit. And at Davenport, Iowa, the temperature was 54. Armistice Day 1940 was a perfect opportunity for many individuals to enjoy the mild respite before winter. So it was kind of like an Indian summer type weather in the fall. And little did they know that the most infamous duck hunt in American history was about to unfold. When the storm exited the region, over a foot of snow had fallen and more than 150 people and thousands of livestock were dead. So here's the story of what happened. The story actually begins in the Pacific Northwest. A few days earlier, on November 7th, 1940, the storm essentially made landfall and took down the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. You may have heard about this bridge collapse if you're into studying history about bridges. I have come across a reference to it. And it happened on November 7th, 1940. And the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was the third longest suspension span in the world at the time. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge uh, was considered an engineering wonder and had already acquired the name the Galloping Gertie due to its motion in the wind. A four-mile-an-hour breeze could start oscillations in the bridge while stronger breezes often had no effect. On November 7, 1940, winds of 35 to 45 miles an hour caused the center span to undulate 3 to 5 feet, and the bridge failed before the center of the storm reached shore. On November 8, 1940, the storm center remained off the Washington coast, producing gale-force winds, and meanwhile, pressure was falling over the Pacific Northwest. By November 10th, the storm system had moved across the Rocky Mountains to develop over the Trinidad, Colorado area, 
Initially, the system pushed east, then it curved northward into the central United States, where it would leave a path of icy destruction. During the next six hours, the storm center moved to the vicinity of Iowa Falls, Iowa, and west of the center blizzards raged across North Dakota, and a widespread ice storm across Nebraska left hundreds of people impacted by the storm. East of the center, a broad swath of warm air streamed up the Mississippi Valley. There's a very uh, detailed weather map showing all the arrows and system movements of this storm in this article. And I'll put this article in the link in the show note descriptions if you guys want to read it and look at the pictures of it. So in the Quad Cities, people awoke to balmy temperatures on November 11th. It had rained overnight and early morning temperatures were in the 50s. Many businesses and schools were closed due to the Armistice Day holiday, and duck hunters were pleased by the opportunity to take to the fields and streams. Few suspected the weather was about to change. Remember, they didn't have the prediction. They didn't have the hourly forecast. Nobody knew this storm was happening. The weather predictions were done twice a day, and they were not able to keep up with fast-moving storm front. So this storm was legendary in its speed and magnitude, and it came upon the Midwest pretty fast and swiftly. So during the day and into the night, severe weather erupted across the Midwest. A tornado was reported one mile west of Davenport, Iowa, and two to three inches of heavy rain fell over the Mississippi Valley. And then heavy snow began to fall across Minnesota and western Iowa. Gale velocities were measured at 80 miles per hour at Grand Rapids, Michigan, and were estimated to be even higher over the Great Lakes. By the time the storm was centered over Lake Superior, the barometer reading had plummeted to 28.57 inches of mercury. Now, what happened to the people that were out on this duck hunt? Because the weather in the morning was so great, it was a holiday, all of these duck hunters in Minnesota and Iowa, went out duck hunting. And I imagine there was probably a similar feeling of duck hunters in Michigan. And the duck hunters in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa were all the ones that were affected suddenly by this. So hunters taking advantage of the holiday and the extremely mild weather were suddenly rewarded with an overabundance of waterfowl. Many would later comment that they'd never seen so many birds. But the birds knew something most of the hunters did not. They were getting out of the way of an approaching storm. So they're out hunting, they're on a holiday, it's mild weather, and suddenly there's an epic amount of ducks and waterfowl in the air. And they're like, ah, this is heaven, this is perfect. They're shooting ducks right and left. Nobody's even giving it a thought that the ducks were fleeing from something that the men on the ground could not see. And across the Midwest, hundreds of duck hunters who were not dressed for the cold because it was 50 degrees that morning, so they had mild jackets on, were suddenly overtaken by the storm. And winds came suddenly, then masses of ducks arrived flying low to the ground. Hunters, awed by the sight of the unending flock of birds, failed to recognize the impending weather signs that a change was about the process. Rain started and then temperatures fell rapidly. By the time the rain turned to sleet and then heavy snow, 
the weather conditions had reduced visibility to zero and, and hunters lost their opportunities to return safely to shore. So many were out on these lakes in the Midwest there around Minnesota. And hundreds of duck hunters lost boats, gear, and guns as 15-foot swells and 70 to 80-mile-per-hour winds swept down channels and marshy backwaters. Some hunters drowned, others froze to death when the near 60-degree temperatures plummeted, first to freezing and then into single digits. During the next few days, search parties retrieved frozen hunters from islands and the icy waters. Some of those lucky enough to be stranded on islands survived the storm, but lost hands or feet due to severe frostbite. Across the upper Midwest, drifts up to 20 feet high buried cars, and rescuers had to force long probes into the rock-hard drifts in their search for missing people. Passenger trains were stranded and roads and highways remained closed for days. Newspaper deliveries were halted, telephone and power lines were damaged, as were homes, barns, and outbuildings in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and Michigan. Historians note that storms were responsible for many shipwrecks, and November storms were known to strike with incredible fury. In spite of this, there were a tremendous incentive for ships to go out during the most dangerous season for their cargoes of coal and grain and crops were in great demand. And this is according to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, which published that note in 2009. Food supplies were needed to get through the winter, and coal was essential for heating during those days. So mariners, aware of the dangers on the Great Lakes, paid close attention to the weather, but during the Armistice Day storm, many of the crews were unaware that the winds would shift until their ships were struck broadside by the full force of the wind. During the storm, three large ships sank near Pentwater, Michigan, and 58 lives were lost. Survivors on ships that ran aground waited for days on their damaged vessels until winds subsided and rescue boats could be launched from shore communities and bring them to shore in safety. Communities expecting the cargoes of their winter supplies were significantly impacted by the loss of food and fuel during that winter. Now, I came across another reference because I wanted to identify the ships that sank in that storm. And on Lake Michigan, this reference says that there were 66 sailors that died in the sinking of three freighters. And the freighters that sunk in that storm was the SS Anna C. Minch, the SS Novodok, and the SS William B. Davok, and two smaller boats. The SS Anna Minch was a cargo carrier which foundered and broke in two and sank in Lake Michigan during the Armistice Day blizzard on November 11, 1940. The Anna C. Minch was a steam-powered, steel-hulled bulk freighter which had been constructed in 1903 by the American Shipbuilding Company at Cleveland. The SS Novodok was a Canadian registry. The vessel was built in 1928 by Swan Hunter and Wiggum Richardson, and it was a steel-hulled 250-foot ship in length, and it was designed to navigate comfortably through the canals and locks of the lower Great Lakes. And the SS William B. Davok was another lake freighter. It had been constructed in 1907 by the Great Lakes Engineering Works at St. Clair, Michigan, which was a facility of the Vulcan Steamship Company. And it was operated by the Vulcan Steamship Company from 1907 to 1915. 
and in the Great Lakes, coal, iron, and ore and grain shipments. And then it changed hands and was owned by a company out of Fairport, Ohio. And it was reconstructed and rebuilt in 1922 to 1923. It was essentially used for the shipment of ore, grain, and coal, and uh, material for the stone trades. So you can imagine that its cargo was quite heavy. And it was a pretty long ship. It had um, a length of 420 feet, and it could carry a tonnage of 4,468 tons of material. And it was the heavier of the three ships that sunk that day in the storm. And going back to the duck hunter story, the duck hunters that were impacted were all along the Mississippi River. And many of them had just taken off work if they'd had to work that day or school and were just taking advantage of the ideal hunting conditions that morning. And the weather forecasters had not predicted the severity of the oncoming storm. And as a result... Many of the hunters were not dressed for cold weather, as I already explained. So when the storm actually began, many of the hunters took shelter on small islands in the Mississippi River. And the 55-mile-per-hour winds and 5-foot waves overcame their encampments. Some were stranded on the islands and then froze to death as temperatures plummeted below 10 degrees Fahrenheit overnight. Others tried to make it to shore and drown. Now, duck hunters constituted about half of the 49 deaths in Minnesota. Those who survived told how ducks came south with the storm by the thousands, and everybody could have shot their daily limit had they not been focused on survival. Now, there were two men that saved a lot of duck hunters' lives, and it, had it not been for their efforts many more of the duck hunters stranded would have died. The casualties were lessened by the efforts of Max Conrad, who was a pioneering light plane pilot and flight school owner, and John R. Bob Beam, one of the flight school instructors. Both were based in Winona, Minnesota, 25 miles upriver from La Crosse, and they flew up and down the river in the wake of the storm, locating survivors, dropping supplies to them, and just making sure that they were known that they had been spotted. And both men would eventually be nominated for the Carnegie Medal for their heroism. One survivor, by the name of Gerald Terrace, survived the storm in Minneapolis due to the two family Labrador retriever dogs who lay beside him and provided body heat to protect him during that cold night. Another incident that happened up in Watkins, Minnesota, two people died when a passenger train and a freight train collided in the blinding snow. And the Watkins residents in that community formed a human chain to lead the passengers to safety. And fortunately, only two people died in that accident. It could have been much worse. And despite the 46 or more duck hunters that died in Minnesota... 13 people died in Illinois, 13 people died in Wisconsin, and 4 people in Michigan. And there was a total of 146 deaths that were blamed on the storm when measured in the aftermath. And an additional note, 1.5 million turkeys intended for Thanksgiving dinners across Minnesota perished from exposure to cold conditions. Now, a seminal event is called that because it's an original event, and it's so groundbreaking and awesome that it will influence everything that comes after it. And the Armistice Day storm not only remains noteworthy to society because it was a seminal event, 
but it continues to impact humans that have come for generations afterwards. Anything that endures as part of a culture from one generation to another is considered a seminal event, and the societal impacts of such an event can change the lives and change history. The consequences of societal impact after the ways in which people live, work, and play relate to one another, and it organizes their needs and generally helps people cope as part of society. So today, forecasters must assess the potential for the societal impacts when a storm like this comes along, and the atmospheric environment and the timing of the event also played a part in the Armistice Day storm. I mean, it was a it was a series of freak events. You have a national holiday. You have all of these people going out to enjoy themselves in an outdoor activity in abundance because of the mild weather, the lack of predictability of what was coming down swiftly down the uh, storm system left everybody who was outdoors vulnerable to the sudden change in the weather system that was a freak anomaly that is something that happens in November from time to time. You might be reminded by the bars in the Gordon Lightfoot song that says the gales of November came early when talking about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So any event of this seminal magnitude has the potential to become folklore and produce a societal impact. And of course, moving forward, and the longer that the weather centers can accumulate weather records, the more likely they are able to find extreme weather events in the patterns of existing weather fronts and give people a faster warning. An assessment of societal impacts has the potential to help individuals and communities understand and anticipate possible social consequences of an event of this magnitude in regards to human populations living in the areas that are affected by the storm. All of this information, once again, is coming from the weather.gov website, which delves into not only the history of the storm, but the impact of the Armistice Day blizzard, because it remains the second most requested bit of information from the Minnesota State Climatologist Office, even in present day. In Iowa, this catastrophic event changed agricultural growing in the entire state as practices of apple growers switched from tending to orchards to corn and soybean production. In fact, the Armistice Day blizzard of 1940 really changed the state of Iowa because it destroyed an entire industry. Prior to this storm, Iowa was a leading fruit-growing state, second only to Michigan in apple production. As the storm center passed near Winterset, Iowa, a ferocious ice storm delivered a devastating blow to the apple industry. Icy winds killed hundreds of apple trees, and planting a new orchard during that time was very expensive. In 1940, the threat of war was growing, and the nation was preparing for hard times. So if trees were planted, it would be years before they would be capable of producing fruit. And so it wasn't in their best interest to try to wait it out and, and suffer through. I mean, they were looking at the forecast of World War II. And so the economic impacts to the apple growers became quite significant as across the landscape of Iowa, they permanently changed from orchards and transformed their orchards into fields of growing crops like corn and soybeans, which could be grown 
faster than apple. You know, apples, you had to wait for the trees. So having an apple orchard is a long-term investment. Now, once the trees are grown and producing apples year to year, then your harvest is uh, consistent just like other crops. But when your entire trees are wiped out, it can really throw your industry um, into a spin. And that's what happened in Iowa. So the entire state following this storm shifted from a heavy apple-producing state to more field crops like corn and soybeans. Evidence of the Armistice Day blizzard is recorded in old newspaper clippings and photos and museum collections, and stories of this event have even been captured in cookbooks, journal articles, and passed through the family in an oral tradition. The storm produced an impact on society due to the death and destruction it left in its wake. If one measures the impact of an event by the diversity of the information that remains, this storm was indeed memorable. Prior to this event, all of the weather forecasts for the regions originated in Chicago. After the failure to provide an accurate forecast for this blizzard, forecasting responsibilities were expanded to include 24-hour coverage, and more forecasting offices were created, yielding more accurate local forecasts across the country. The U.S. Weather Bureau was criticized when it failed to predict the huge blizzard, and officials released a statement that they were aware that the storm was coming, but wrong about its strength and scope. Another impact that came out of the storm was the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and St. Paul area branch of meteorology was upgraded to issue forecasts and not rely on the Chicago site exclusively. So that's going to conclude today's episode on the Armistice Day blizzard of 1940. What an amazing look at history and how it impacted so many states and so many regions. In southwest Michigan, it caused the wreck of three ships off of Lake Michigan, which they all were found south of Pentwater, which is south of uh, Ludington. And it, of course, caused a lot of drifts and snow and uh, damage to property with the ice storm, as it did all across the Midwest. And there was some loss of life, but not as severe as it was over in Minnesota and along the Mississippi River. And it's said that this storm had a 1,000-mile-wide swath that it went across the middle of the country. So a lot of people were impacted, a lot of communities, with this massive, somewhat of a surprise storm that came on during a time when meteorological predictions were somewhat in their infancy compared to what they are today. And I don't really think that we have it fully mapped out even today. I mean, there are still a lot of unpredictable weather patterns that we've all experienced so at least they're learning from each storm and each experience and recording data, and they're getting better and better at it with each generation. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And I also have a calendar on there now on the website, michaeldelaware.com, where you can find out about my 2024 book tour that's going to begin in March after my book Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime is released on March 11th. And so if you're interested in taking part in showing up at any of those events that I will be doing book signings and speaking engagements, go ahead and check out that calendar and mark some of those dates on there for you. 
There's also a link in that uh, calendar description where you can sign up for an email right on History Press's website to be notified when the book comes out in case you want to just uh, submit your email in there and forget about it and wait for that message to get to you. And there are still plenty of tickets available for Tales of Christmas Past. This is an event that is happening at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum on December 16th. And it is going to be featuring Dave Eddy, Bobby Mathis, Brian and Jill McCombs, and Donna Rickman and myself in a performance about Tales of Christmas Past. And there are stories that we've collected from hundreds of years ago. And many of them were across the nation and in southwest Michigan when they were published. So it's going to be a fun holiday experience. And last year we had two sold-out crowds, and we're hoping to have the same this year. All the proceeds go to benefit the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. And the performances are going to be held in the History Education Center at the museum, which is located at 307 West Jackson Street. So I will put the link to where you can get tickets in the show note descriptions. And you can also go to the museum's website at uh, bcrhm.org and find out information right there where to get tickets. There are two performances. One is at 2 p.m. and the other is at 6 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th. So that's all the information I have on that right now. I hope to have some of, of my fellow cast members on this show before the actual performance takes place. We can talk about some of the stories in Christmas and spread a little Christmas cheer. And that being said, I hope you'll join me next time as we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you so much for listening.